It's Monday, March 29th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Jason Moser. Good to see you. Good to see you. Good to see you. How was your weekend? Uh, my weekend was good. Yeah. My weekend's good. Looking, looking to you know ease into spring break here. Beautiful weather. Uh, we're going to talk semiconductors, but we got to start with. I, I don't know where to begin. This is a complicated <laughs> story. Let me start there. This is a complicated story, and there, and there are, I think, ripple effects for us as individual investors. So let's start with the context that over the last six months, shares of Discovery Communications and Viacom CBS have done quite well. They've been bid up. I think they've you know roughly doubled over the last six months. Over the past week, however, over the past week, both of those stocks have been cut in half due to forced selling by the firm that had been buying it up. Um, and I will also <laughs> add that today, shares of Credit Suisse are down 15% because they said they face a highly significant and material hit to first quarter results after an unspecified fund had defaulted on margin calls to Credit Suisse and other banks. Um, and th- this is a, a firm I'd never heard of until today. I think a lot of people had not heard of it until today. Um, Archegos or Archegos? I, I, think Capital it's Ar- management. I think it might be Archegos, uh, but, Archegos. but anyway. Yeah. There you go. The third way. Archegos <laughs> yeah. uh, Capital Management. Um, so, this is a family office, and that's not a quaint term. That is an official designation. <laughs> and apparently... They'd just been amassing all of this stock and uh, reportedly had ownership stakes of both Discovery and Viacom north of 10%. That was not disclosed because they did not have to disclose it. Um, And now we've got uh, two of the most exciting words in investing, and that's margin call. Um, (laughs) There are a lot of different ways we could go with this. Start wherever you like. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there are there are a lot of a lot of things at play here. And and to your point, yeah, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, uh, Deutsche Bank, Credit Suisse. Uh, there are a number of banks that served as brokers. To, uh, let's go with Archegos. I may be wrong, but I'm just going to stick with that at least and be consistent. Um, and that ultimately meant that they were. You know they were they were the banks that processed trades and and, and lent cash and, and and securities to this fund and, and I think it was something I mean this was a highly leveraged fund I mean I think they were they were managing somewhere in the neighborhood of ten billion dollars or something like that but had thirty billion dollars worth of exposure uh, due to to short positions and in margin and whatnot so. It, uh, wow, yeah, there are a lot of different ways we could go with this. So, ultimately, what this, in thinking about this all morning, um, it, it, there's so much to unpeel here that I feel like it, it lent itself very, very well to, to a David Letterman style top 10 list. Do you remember back in the day of the Letterman show, the top 10, the top 10 list? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that was like, that, that is like iconic. And to me, this is just a great opportunity for a David Letterman style top 10 list. Uh, so, so let's go ahead and jump into it. Top 10 lessons learned from Archegos. Uh, from the Archegos Capital's f- failure or demise. Uh, lesson number 10, leverage is dangerous. Lesson number nine, learn to think for yourself. Lesson number eight, 
If something doesn't look like it makes sense, eh, maybe it doesn't. Lesson number seven. Sometimes the road less traveled is less traveled for a reason. Lesson number six. Hey, Chris, guess what? Fundamentals actually matter. <laughs> Lesson number five. Don't short. It's not worth it. Lesson number four, there are greater forces at play in the market that we'll never be fully or even partly privy to. Lesson number three, diversification matters. You should do it. Lesson number two, there are some things we just can't foresee and know as investors. It's always a leap of faith, but that is not the reason to invest. You simply have to go in with that context, with that assumption already in place. It's why we invest the way we do. And lesson number one, from Archegos Capital's demise here. Chris, you ready? If someone gives you the chance to get in on the ground floor with Bill Huang's next fund, maybe just take a pass. <laughs> <laughs> well done, sir. Well, thank you. I, I spent a few minutes putting that together. And, and uh, while, while that was a lot of fun, I really do feel like all of those lessons really do come into play here. And, I, you know, it's interesting in regard to that that idea there's some things we just don't know and we can't really foresee there's a lot of stuff going on there are a lot of forces at play in the market that we just don't really have uh have have insight to i think part of this is tied to uh the way some of these trades were set up via swaps and i think swaps gave Mr. Huang some anonymity in this regard which is why ultimately those ownership stakes that you mentioned earlier were I, I guess either never disclosed or they didn't have to be disclosed, and and I think he he held those those types of stakes in a number of different companies, um, and ultimately yeah like you said shares of Viacom, CBS, and Discovery year to date. I mean going into the after the, after the close last Friday, uh, they were up one hundred sixty one percent, one hundred fifty seven percent, one hundred fifty seven percent respectively year to date. Um, and, and when you look at the fundamentals of those businesses, I mean, that, that is a very, very big head-scratcher. Uh, now we're starting to really understand exactly what's been going on. So, for individual investors, um, it, it's totally reasonable to imagine a scenario where people look at the rise of streaming over the past year. We saw it with Netflix. We've certainly seen it with, with Disney+, and, and to varying degrees of success, HBO Max, Peacock, etc. You can imagine a scenario where individual investors look at Discovery Communications, Viacom CBS, and say, hey, if I just want to bet on all the horses in this race, I'm going to buy some shares of each one of these. And then, you know, in some cases, they get, uh, they, they end up, uh, they look at sort of the, the rise of those last two stocks. And think, okay, it's maybe I'm late, but this thing appears to be doing nothing but go straight up. So they buy it two weeks ago, and now they're sitting on significant losses as a result yeah. of that on paper. Um, I, I did an interview last week where the, the the host of the show was asking me about everything that we've seen play out with Reddit and Wall Street bets and, and GameStop and that sort of thing. And he asked me, do you think we're going to see some? sort of regulatory overhaul and I preface my answer by saying I'm not a lawyer but you know on the surface there I'm not really seeing where where the necessary changes need to be made um, I could see it being made with this um, because in this situation where you know and I I, uh, I have to credit CNBC because I thought their coverage this morning was 
particularly informative in, ter in terms of laying the groundwork of well, what's really going on here and the, the family office de designation. Um, this, you know, this is uh, essentially a private fund. And when the Dodd-Frank um, uh, law was passed, apparently family offices heavily lobbied Congress not to include them in significant SEC registration and, and, and regulatory approvals and all that sort of thing. On the uh, and a big part of their argument was, hey, look, these are family offices; these are private funds; these are conservatively managed, and therefore they don't need to be a part of this. Well, now you're looking at anywhere between five and ten thousand of these funds around the world managing in excess collectively of six trillion dollars, yeah. and the ripple effect uh, for individual investors is real. And and um, so this is a situation where. I could see, I could see this being revisited um, because it's not just mom and pop investors who bought shares of Viacom, CBS, and Discovery Communications. I'm pretty sure the people at Credit Suisse are uh, are not happy about what's happening, um, and uh, we'll see where it goes from here. And uh, but the, for the moment, anyway, the damage appears to have been contained. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think just like anything, you, you work within the rules that you're given. And whether it's a game or whether it's taxes or whether it is, in this case, uh, investing in the financial markets, I mean, I, I'd like to believe that this is probably just one bad apple. But my suspicion is, uh, given the number of, of funds out there with this designation, it's not the only one trying to use the rules to its advantage. I mean, that conservatively managed uh, descriptor there is, is important, because I think you could argue that this fund was not conservatively managed. Uh, perhaps it was in Mr. Huang's eyes. I think most of us would disagree. Um, it, you know, it, it also the question regarding swaps and anonymity. I mean, we live in an age now where information is available at the snap of a finger, um, and I think that as as time goes on, as technology continues to level the playing field uh, for investors, to me, it only makes sense that we see a trend towards more transparency as opposed to the other way around. But but yeah, I, I reckon time will tell. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Got a question from Seth Thompson. He writes, as you might know, there's a serious shortage of semiconductors in the world right now. I've been researching NVIDIA, AMD, Intel, and a few other companies involved in the industry. But I would love to hear which companies you think have the best chance to deliver strong results during this time of extreme semiconductor demand. And do you think the current shortage will have any effect on the way the market moves over the next few quarters, I'll I'll just take that second one first. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, and all you have to do is look at any news out of the automotive industry, and and how crippled is probably too strong a word, but compromised I think is a good word for to describe the automotive industry with um, the way that. They do their supply chains, and the the ripple effect of the semiconductor shortage is is really compromising automotives. Yeah, yeah, much like the uh, much like the <laughs> the traffic jam in the Suez Canal. I mean, this is 
the traffic jam of, of a different sort. Um, but, but clearly it's something that's having a material impact on a lot of, of businesses, a lot of markets. And, and I, I don't think that's, you know, it's not going to be something that, that remedies itself anytime in, in the immediate near future. Um, I, I'm glad you referred to the automotive market because I think that's one where a lot of people just don't even really give it a second thought. But if you if you think the way cars are today, I mean, you're, you're seeing anywhere from 50, 50, upwards of 50 semiconductors in a vehicle these days. I mean, think about that. I mean, these are just, these are just <laughs> computers on wheels at this point. And so, for one car to have that much exposure to technology, I mean, you can see what just any little crimp in supply could do. Um, and, and it just plays out in, in virtually everything we do now, given this move towards uh, everything in our lives being digital and tech related, the market opportunities and internet of things, uh, all, all, you know, 5g role. I mean, there's just so many tailwinds uh, in regard to technology and, and really the semiconductor uh, industry is, is a crucial part of it. So to see, to see what's going on, I mean, it's understandable why it's happening. Um, it's good to know that it is a temporary thing. It's not something that is going to last forever, but it is something that is going to be around for a little while longer. I like that the companies uh, pointed out there by Lewis uh, in NVIDIA and AMD and Intel. I think they all provide some interesting and in, in different looks, NVIDIA being clearly a name that's, that's top of mind for its graphics uh, capabilities. And, and then AMD, one that probably, I mean, a, a stalwart in the industry that probably a lot of people haven't really thought about a whole heck of a lot lately, but they've got that acquisition with Zion links that's getting ready to close. Intel making a big pivot. That Foundry news, I think, was pretty pretty fascinating. And it'll, you know, we'll have to wait and see how that uh, ultimately plays out to see if that was a good decision or a bad one. Um, I, I like those ideas. Uh, this is certainly something that I follow in the in the 5G service that I run here at work. So I enjoy it a lot. And I mean, there are definitely a lot of companies that come into play here beyond just those, Lewis. And so I mean some to keep in mind. Um, companies that I've enjoyed following. One of them is Corvo. Uh, the ticker there is QRVO. Uh, but Corvo focuses specifically, or it, it has it has a specific focus. This is not all that it does, but it has a specific focus on ultra wideband uh, technology or UWB, and that's basically a short range radio technology. It's it's used to move large quantities of digital data over short distances and it's known for delivering superior location accuracy and security and latency compared to other short-range technologies and so uh with with corvo i mean it's not the only company that focuses on that uwb opportunity but it is it is one member of a small club and, and they made an acquisition here a little while back a company called decawave a 375 million dollar acquisition to give them more presence in that space um, in, in Corvo management on the on the most recent earnings call, they they did make mention of the supply chain constraints. Um, they it's not something you can just remedy as, a, as an individual company. You kind of have to just weather the storm, so to speak. Uh, it may keep a lid on growth here in the next couple of quarters, but that growth will ultimately flow through. Uh, they, they do have a, a big customer in Apple, uh, but, but that oftentimes can be a very good thing, particularly as, as you've uh, established that relationship over a long period of time. So, Corvo, I think, is one to keep an eye on uh, with a focus on that UWB technology. Uh, another one that I feel like 
over the past five plus years has really flown under a lot of radars, and for good reason. I mean, it's been pretty pretty stagnant thanks to uh, saturation in the smartphone market. Is Qualcomm uh, a name? I'm sure probably everybody out there is familiar with at this point. But but Qualcomm has just a tremendous business on both the chip side and its technology side. It's got a valuable IP portfolio. It, it really generates a lot of operating income just over licensing the technology uh, that it, that it has uh, in, in its portfolio. I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 140,000 plus. Uh, patents in in in, uh, in 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 their IP portfolio that really give them just it, it feels like a presence in virtually virtually every device that that we own. Um, again, they they absolutely made note of this of this shortage on their most recent call. Uh, again, they see a very similar timeline uh, to, to what was described by Corvo. Um, and then I think finally one that one that it's kind of a sleeper. I think. Uh, for a lot of folks, and again, I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that it it really hasn't grown over the last several years, and a lot of that is for the same reasons as as something like a Qualcomm, but but Marvell Technology, uh, the ticker for Marvell is MRVL, uh, Qualcomm is uh, QCOM, but Marvell Technology is is a, uh, a semiconductor company that focuses on high performance data infrastructure. Uh, products and the markets it focuses on are automotive, carrier, data center, and enterprise. And so for for Marvell, um, it, you know they they've been more or less stagnant over the last several years, but they've been investing all the way, and I think that's been held against them a little bit here. And when I say investing, I mean investments in R and D uh, have been around thirty five percent of 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 revenue on average. Uh, each year since 2016, so that that I think is crimped profitability for the business. Uh, but they have made a lot of investments in this 5G rollout, and they are seeing a lot of demand for it now. And uh, management did note <clears throat> on the most recent call this this shortage in, in some of the reasons for it. I mean, understanding it, part of it is COVID-19, part of it is this just growing role of tech in our lives and whatnot. But but for, for from their perspective, and Marvell keeps a pretty concentrated customer uh, base, uh, but, but they have seen with their customer base that this is going to be something where it's more delayed. Those customers aren't able to go somewhere else. It's simply going to be, it's, it's more or less a timing thing. Um, and then I think with with Marvell, they've also got this acquisition of Infi, which is getting ready to close as well. And Infi is is a company that focuses on helping move that data within the data center and outside of the data center. I think that 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 acquisition of Infi is it's going to give them a nice little boost to that to that overall market opportunity that they pursue. Uh, I, to my mind, I think Marvell is actually a little bit of a coiled spring going on here. I wouldn't be surprised at all to see Marvell have a great. Uh, coming five years here, but but there's a few names in the space beyond what you mentioned there, Lewis. I, I think it's a tremendous opportunity that we're going to watch play out here over the next uh, several years, and uh, and I'm I'm going to enjoy following it. Yeah, th- uh, thank you for reminding me. That was it was uh, it was a great email. It was also a little confusing in in the fact that you know up in the header. It said his name was Seth, and then he signed it Lewis. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're just going to go with both. Cause... I'm going with Lewis because I saw that's I didn't even hear Seth. I just saw Lewis, and I thought, okay, but yeah, either either one. Thanks for the email. Either way, <laughs> that's you know that's happened a few times over the years. That you know, sure. it's like it's it's kind of like the the pronunciation of uh, Arcagos. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're gonna you know. I think I pronounced it three different ways, so you know, hopefully one of those three is correct. It's whatever you want it to be, big guy. It's whatever you want it to be. Jason Mozart, great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Ben. 
As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about on The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.